Welcome, everyone, to the fourth episode of Metaphysical Musings. My name is Tina Dubois, and I'm your host for the show, the founder of Metaphysical School, a crystal and sound healing facilitator, as well as a teacher and student of various metaphysical topics. In today's show, I am super excited to interview Leslie Thayer, one of our fabulous Metaphysical School faculty and sacred dance teacher at the Universal Dancer. We're going to talk about ancient teachings and how they can be applied to today's modern world. Leslie is going to answer why ancient cultures seem to know so much more than we do now. She'll talk about how the great cycles of time and what they mean to us as individuals. She'll draw on her experiences living in Egypt for the last 35 years and how she connected to ancient teachers, the Neteru, specifically the Hathor. We're going to discover why the ancients knew what they knew and how we can harness that knowledge for our paths now. Let's bring Leslie onto the show. Hi, Leslie, it's so wonderful to have you on the show. Hi, Tina. Thank you for having me. Now that you're here, I'd like to share a bit more of an introduction for you. Leslie is a writer and teacher of sacred dance, helping women reconnect to the sacred feminine. She is also the host and producer of the Universal Dancer podcast, as well as being an aromatherapist, hypnotherapist, Reiki master, and astrologer. So she knows all the stuff. She's published two books. The first is The Alchemy of Dance, Sacred Dance as a Path to the Universal Dancer, and second, The Alchemia Remedies, Vibrational Essences from Egyptian Flowers and Sacred Sites. Her workshops have been attended by hundreds of women of different nationalities and taken her from Cairo and ancient Egyptian temples along the Nile River to studios and centers across America and now to an online platform, the Universal Dancer Temple of Sacred Arts. Through dance, Leslie retells the archetypal stories taking women back through time to the essence of their being, initiating and unlocking the esoteric wisdom buried deep within their psyche. And every time I say that, I get chills. So, and lastly, Leslie is also one of our fabulous metaphysical school faculty and has shared with us her video course on the wisdom of Hathor, an introduction to the divine feminine. She's also participated in our two masterclass events, in our Energy Empowerment Masterclass, she shared her wisdom on setting energetic boundaries. And in our Intuitive Awakening Masterclass, she shared her tips for thriving through an intuitive awakening, as well as awakening as a speaker. Thank you again, Leslie, for joining us. Let's start with talking about how ancient cultures did seem to know so much more than we do now specifically about the concepts of energy. Yes, I think we need to go backward before we go forward. So nice. um, I made a, a few slides. I just, there's a few concepts that I would like to present just to sort of build a base for what we're gonna talk about. So there's two points I wanna make before we start this discussion. One is the procession of the equinoxes. I think it's important to understand what this is and basically what the procession of the equinoxes is at the equinoxes is specifically 
now we're using the spring equinox, there's the, the Sphinx, it points directly to the east. So it's very interesting. So during the equinoxes, the sun actually rises right in front of the Sphinx. So if you were standing behind the Sphinx, you would see the sun coming up just over the Sphinx's head. It's due east. And so the equinoxes, the procession is about what sign, what astrological constellation rises just before the sun. So we have the ages. You can show the next slide maybe, and, and I will begin to explain this. But what happens is that we go through all the different constellations. So right now we're talking about the age of Aquarius. Well, what that means is that just before the sun rises, we would see the constellation of Aquarius on the horizon. So this changes every 2,160 years, there's a different constellation that rises just before the sun on the equinox. So this is what defines the different ages. So we've been in the age of Pisces, now we're moving into the age of Aquarius. Now all the ancient cultures knew about this, they spoke about this. And what's really interesting is that, um, that it wasn't really something that people talked about, even though the ancients in all of their myths and, and their writings, they talk about this procession. It wasn't something that, that archeologists or probably even scientists talked about much. I think most people know about it now, but Can I ask I a question? Was, yeah, sure. So was this procession of the equinoxes knowledge more like, what we would consider today like just common knowledge so it's not something that yes. we really talk about. it was just part of their culture and therefore it wasn't really something to write down it was just part of who they were well yes and no it was important so they did actually write it down but they spoke about it in a comment like all cultures spoke about it that's what's interesting uh if you've ever read the book hamlet's mill they're talking at the Hamlet's mill, basically the mill was a metaphor for this, this cycle, this procession. And they go on to describe all these ancient cultures that actually used this, this system of the procession. And in 19, I think it was 96, I could be off by a few years, but around 1996, Robert Bouval and uh, Graham Hancock wrote a book called Message of the Sphinx or the Keepers of Genesis. It had two titles, and I don't really know why. But anyway, in this book, it's when Robert Bouval suggests that the pyramids are aligned to the stars in Orion's belt. So this was 1996, I think, in the 90s. Everybody just laughed at him. They said, this is absolutely ridiculous, especially the Egyptologists that, you know, no, no, the ancients didn't know anything about how could they do that? How could they be that exact? They had primitive tools, you know, all of this. Well, now we know. So what, it's 30, almost 30 years later. Now we know that all these ancient sites are aligned to constellations. So in 30 years, there's been a huge shift. And I think we are living in a really exciting time where science is finally decided that it needs to actually look at these concepts. So now I think procession is, is fairly common. Uh, 
people talk about it. The scientists believe it's because of the pull from the moon that creates a tilt in the earth, and then it, it changes over time. And I'll, I'll go into that a little bit more. But first, I want to get to the concept of precession is that that's what, how we define the ages is it's whatever constellation is rising during this, this equinox, that's what defines the age. Now, another thing that's kind of interesting is that now we actually use the, I think we call it now the March equinox, because we can't call it spring, because in the Southern Hemisphere, it's not actually spring, but the March equinox, which is generally what we're using, we call it the spring equinox, but the ancients actually used the fall equinox as this indicator. So that, that's something that, that I think will unfold and become clearer as time goes on, but it's only just recently that everybody's really looking at this and seeing how important this concept is. So precession, as I said, if you want to bring up the next slide, is, is occurs because of this, the earth is tilted, and there is this anomaly that creates something that is going to uh, change the, the angle of the, of the earth's axis to make it a different north star. So now Polaris is our north star. In 14,000, Vega will be our North Star. So because of this wobble and the way it goes around, it, the, the signs change. Now, um, as I mentioned, scientists are saying that has to do with the pull of the moon and all of these things, but actually that has been tested and that's not true. <laughs> we don't know what causes it, but it's not from the, there's nothing within our solar system that's actually causing that. So it has to be something from outside of the solar system. Well, and this is a whole, well, okay. This is a whole different subject. So I'm just going to mention it briefly because if anybody's really interested, I think that they should pursue this. But there are people that believe that we are part of a binary system, that there are actually two suns. And at first it was believed that 60% of all stars are binary. And now they believe possibly that's up to 80%. So the likelihood that we are a binary system is more than 50%. So it probably is true. And um, so with that bi binary theory, that would mean that that would mean that all, we that are all part the planets there. in our solar system are affected by more than just the gravity of our sun to a significant yes. degree. Yes, they could be, because our whole what it's saying is that is that we have twin suns, which, as I said, is like it's possibly eighty percent of stars actually come in pairs, which is a whole nother subject, and it's really interesting. Because, yes, that makes sense that these things happen. There's also, in, in mythology, there's all of these um, myths about twins. And probably those are metaphors for these two suns that actually, there's two stars that actually 
rotate within each other, affecting each other. Now, this is going to become important when we talk about the, the great year and the bigger cycles, because that's possibly something that's happening within this system. So I'm going to just leave it at that. If people are interested, there's actually a binary institute, and that's what they're doing, is they're researching this possibility of there being a second sun that we are connected with. So I, I want to talk about that, about precession, just to sort of set that up. So if I say precession, people know what I'm talking about. But the other thing I want to talk about is the great year, again, to sort of set things up. And that's the next slide. So this concept of the great year, this is a cycle that takes 24,000 years, possibly 26,000 years, and it would be 12 years descending, uh, sorry, 12 years, 12,000 years descending and 12,000 years ascending. And I think probably people have heard about this. You've probably heard about the, the Kali Yuga um, because that's the lowest point. So you may have kind of heard about this, but maybe you don't know what it is, or maybe you do know what it is, but I'm just going to explain it to, to build this base that we can talk about. So the golden age, obviously at the top, is the, the best place to be. It's where everything is just in perfection, in perfection, not imperfection. <laughs> everything is perfect, okay? And in this cycle that we're going to talk about, that was at 11,500 BC. So we then went into this descending age where we descend down into the silver, then to the bronze, and then to the iron. All of this getting, let's just say, less spiritual or more material. And around 31,000 BC is when we moved into the descending Bronze Age. Now, that date may sort of ring a bell for people because that's when all of these cultures like ancient Egypt were, that's, those are the dates that are given. I think it's 3200 BC that they say that Upper and Lower Egypt were unified. Um, so that's kind of an important date. And then if you keep going down, obviously things get heavier during the Bronze Age. And then the Iron Age, the Kali Yuga, is the lowest point. And, this, and we have the descending iron and then we have the ascending iron. Now, the midpoint between those two was 500 AD, which was the Dark Ages. And I think that we can probably agree that that historically is probably the lowest point that we know of. And this so, is in like lowest point when you talk about that is, um, are you talking about like spiritual energy or spiritual enlightenment? That sort of thing? Everything. People's lives, in 500 AD, the lifespan was 30 years. I mean, it was a really horrible time. And we know that before that, and this has been a problem like with archaeologists that they didn't want to believe, like they don't want to believe that the Sphinx might possibly be, you know, 10,000 years old because no, they couldn't have done that. They didn't have the tools or 
But in this model, no, we actually were at a higher age and then we descended to this lowest point of the Kali Yuga and now we're on the ascent. And present day, we're in the ascending Bronze Age, but we're kind of just in the ascending Bronze Age. So we've moved into that. We're definitely better, <laughs> better off than we were in 500 AD, but we're still, you know, we're still working on it. But I think, as I said before, I think this is an exciting time. Like a lot is happening in a very short period of time. I referenced this book that was 30 years ago. So in 30 years, a lot has happened. And I think one of the big turning points was Gobekli Tepe. When this was discovered, because no one wanted to believe that our history was older than 3100 BC. That was Do you it. want to that talk was about when... what Gobekli Tepe is for people who don't yeah. know? It's for those who don't know, it's, it's something that was discovered in Turkey. And it's dated to be about 10,000 BC. And it's amazing. And, and if you haven't seen the pictures of it, just Google it and look at the pictures because the work that is done, the, the carving, the type of carving that's done, it's this, I can't remember what it's called, but it's when like the animals are coming out of the stone, which means you have to cut away all the stone except for that animal that's, that's protruding. It's very something very difficult to do. And the whole thing was buried, was intentionally buried. So as soon as that was discovered, and it was dated to 10,000 BC, all of a sudden, everybody just had to throw their hands up in the air because now we know that our history and civilization is much older than we thought it was. And it's probably much older than that, but that was proof that there's something else going on here so um, and the dating of the site of of the turkish um gobeki temple it also kind of gave some more evidence to uh robert guval i think i have his name right um his yeah. you know his theory <laughs> i guess is that that um the ancient egyptian sites uh temples in the sphinx they are older than 6,000 years as well, that they could be much, yes. much older than yes. what archaeologists thought they were like 40 years ago. Yes, and they removed the ceiling because we know Gobekli Tepe is 12,000 years old. So to say that the Sphinx is 10,000 or 12,000 years old is now a possibility. And John Anthony West, who, who did a lot of work in Egypt, he brought Robert Schock, who is a geologist, and he had him come, and, and, a, and a scientist. I mean, he's a professor at Boston University. And he came and he did tests around the Sphinx. And he said, no, this is much older. This is, yeah, this is probably 10,000 years old. So um, now we're at the point where science instead of combating what people are saying what independent archaeologists are saying or independent researchers are saying now science is beginning to support that but i think that's also kind of part of this new the new age that we are moving in 
to is is this you know bringing together of of science and spirituality and now that we've sort of broken through uh there's a lot that's going on there's a lot more science that's being done in in really interesting areas and i'm happy that that's why i say it's an exciting time because i'm happy that researchers are working towards this instead of trying to just pretend it doesn't exist or to disprove these things so yeah, the secret happened, of the scientific are you know, yeah. coming together in the middle in many, in, in many scientific areas. Yes. And that's the way it was in ancient cultures, in ancient Egypt, science and magic were the same thing. There wasn't a separation and there wasn't for a very long time. I think through the Greek and Roman periods, it's really only later on. I mean, Charles Darwin had a big influence and and Descartes has a, had a big influence in changing people's thinking into something less spiritual. But as we can see from this chart, that's a natural progression. And we know that in alchemy. In alchemy, you, you are constantly bringing things together and taking them apart. You take them apart and you look at them and you work on them and then you bring them back together. So this is, you know, we can think of this as a huge alchemical process of this the descending is the the separating out, and then the ascending is the is the bringing things back together. So this is why I'm saying I think we have a lot to learn from the ancients because they really did know what they were talking about. They were talking about very spiritual concepts, and a lot of people who are doing spiritual work know that. But I think it can be a bit more concrete than it has been in the past. Before it was just sort of a, a feeling. I feel that this must be true. But now there are ways. There are people that are, you know, as I said, integrating science and researching this. And I think that's important to bring these two things together so that we can formulate a better idea of, you know, what this is all about. And if this is an ascending process and this is where we're going. We can kind of get a real jump on that if we begin to look backward to cultures who already went through this process and what did they know. And it's really interesting. I think, I think it's a good idea to, to read all of this and then just stop and, and kind of think about what do you feel is right and, and isn't right and... Um, how could it be? And and I don't think we have to just decide that it's one way because it is it is an unfolding, and things are changing, and let's let it change and let's experiment and entertain ideas and see where that can take us. But I do think that these ancient cultures have a lot to teach us once we stopped trying to put them down and, and treat them as if they were barbaric and they didn't know primitive. what. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know if you've ever read John Anthony West's book, Serpent in the Sky, but the way the book is set up is so interesting. It, it's quite a large book. And what he's done is he has the text that he, whatever he's talking about. And then over in the margins, he has quotations by very well-known like 
people like Carter, very well-known archaeologists, making statements like, well, these people couldn't possibly, they were barbarians, they were uncivilized, they couldn't possibly have known what they were talking about. Or, and the whole book is like <laughs> just these statements. And then, and then on the other side, you're reading what he's talking about, like this, this whole concept of numerology or spirituality or, you know, these very highly intellectual and well thought out ideas. And then over here, someone is saying, no, 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 they didn't know anything. They didn't even have, you know, primitive tools or, or whatever. And, and clearly that's not true. And as I said, it's, it's an exciting time because there are a lot of scientists now that have realized, no, there's something going on here and we need to know what it is. We need to look at this more closely and, and not just dismiss it because we think that ancient people didn't know anything. And I, I really do think Gobekli Tepe was kind of that turning point where everybody couldn't just stick their head in the sand anymore. They had to realize that there is some bigger picture here. I feel like in, you know, in the last couple of hundred years that there's been this, you know, if you look at science and spirituality on a spectrum, they were at completely opposite poles. And that was the polarity of science and spirituality. And what's coming now, what's happening now is that those ends are getting a little bit closer so that they're not so far apart. And when that happens, we finally get a chance to discuss the two topics at the same time and, you know, investigate, question, be curious about how the two are related and not completely separate entities. And there, it's important. It's, it is important to understand that. And I think that that people are beginning to realize that, that there are other ways to do things. For example, someone said, well, obviously the ancients weren't more in, you know, knowledgeable or, or however you want to put it than we are because they didn't have cars, they didn't have airplanes. Well, first of all, maybe they did, but secondly, <laughs> yeah. maybe they chose not to. I mean, I think now also this whole concept of sustainability, that the, the, the idea of a carbon footprint, when someone brought that idea out, it changes everything. They were wise enough to know that they didn't want to leave a carbon footprint. So they would have done things in a way. There are a lot of people who live in, in houses out in the woods with solar panels or whatever, because they don't want to destroy the earth. Well, if you were highly evolved, you would already know that. You would already know that there are ways to do things without destroying everything around you. And as the, we moved to become denser and denser and more material, those things were, were gone. Apparently, the Greeks knew how to make an engine. But you know, no one talks about that, but maybe chose they not chose to go not the combustion to. route. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. So I think that those arguments are irrelevant now and, or maybe we've moved, maybe we've evolved enough to understand why someone might want to live in that way without 
creating all this garbage or without leaving things behind. In, in Egypt, I think everybody is really familiar with the pyramids and the temples and these, these monuments that have withstood the test of time. But it was interesting because the ancient Egyptians built their temples or pyramids out of stone and things that would last forever, but their houses were built out of bricks that would just disintegrate. So you don't usually find houses and things like this. You find temples. You find something that was built for a spiritual aspect to, um, to honor something greater than themselves. And also these temples are, are classrooms. They're three-dimensional classrooms. And they were made in that way. And they were made to last. And I think that... Um, all of these like standing stones, like Stonehenge, all of these are aligned to solstices, to equinoxes, to different constellations. The ancients were trying to talk to us in a language that was visual so that we didn't that need words. Yes. And they're still here because they're aligned. You can't, we can no longer just say, no, this is not... Um, you know, this is not, this is nonsense or like, why would you, <laughs> why would you build these standing stones that, that weigh tons? Why would you go through all of this work? You know, you have nothing better to do. Why would you do that? So I think that uh, we need to stop and say, okay, these people were trying to talk to us through the ages and through time. And if you wanted to do that and you wanted to leave something behind, how would you do that? Well, you would do it. You probably wouldn't necessarily do it with a language because people speak different languages. Language changes over time. You would do it in a way that was visual, that was symbolic, so that when cultures further into the future saw these things, they would be able to decipher what they are. And I think it's important to, if you look at, at these structures, these temples, to really think about what it evokes in you and how you feel about it. Because there is a message in all of it. And, and when you go to the temples, when you go to the ancient temples and you walk into them, you can feel something. All of these hieroglyphs and, and the, the artwork on the walls, it's all speaking to you and it's all making you feel something and it's sacred geometry, so it's working on you. And the electromagnetic fields in these places are very different. So you're, you're getting a sort of sensorial experience of something that doesn't have to be in words. There are other ways to communicate, and I think they were wise enough to realize that through time they would need to do that. They would need to find ways to communicate that were not in a written language. That's not broad enough. Yeah, information can be transmitted, you know, in a number of ways, because <laughs> information is just energy, right? Yep. And so those yes. of us who are energetically sensitive, you know, can learn Pick and up on it. <laughs> absorb information <laughs> whether we want to or not and that is yeah. one of the beautiful things about 
sacred geometry. And, you know, for those who don't know, sacred geometry was kind of one of my um, metaphysical rabbit holes that I went down and kind of is the reason why metaphysical school exists actually is my, you know, journey to learning about sacred geometry and all that I could about it. Um, yeah, so information can be delivered in more than just a written form or an oral form. It can be energetically transmitted as well. And there's many ways to communicate. Uh, another wonderful book is uh, The Alphabet Versus the Goddess. Uh, Leonard Schlein is the, is the author. And it's wonderful because after reading that book, that was the first time that I understood history. I had taken history in school and I never got it. I didn't know when when were the Greeks and when were the Romans and when was the Dark Ages and when was the medieval period. And But he goes through each one of these and talks about the written word and how the written word was kind of our downfall or that's when we lost the goddess because we completely moved to the left brain. Before that, it was storytelling and it was... Um, Oral you tradition. Know, yes, drama, dancing, nature, uh, figurines, being exactly. by nature cycles. Yeah. Yes, yes. And how when we moved into the left brain, that that was really the beginning of the end. And when we lost the goddess, which to me is the feminine, I think that, you know, we're, the goddess represents the divine feminine. And so when we now we're getting back, that we're reintegrating like this we're having a conversation and i think that 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 again is just something to look at to affirm and to realize that we are becoming more right brain again or we're integrating that the maya talk about this period of time and how through different periods of time we move from the left brain to the right brain and we're kind of alternating which one is more important or more dominant at that period of time, but this period of time is about integrating the two, which again brings us back to the age of Aquarius because Aquarius is about integration. The caduceus, which are the two snakes going up the staff, is the symbol for Uranus, which is the ruler of Aquarius. So this period of time, the age of Aquarius, is very much about this integration, this integration of opposites, it's not about neutrality. It's not about removing all of this. It's about integrating these two. These two polarities are important, but they need to, to come together. And the feminine is really about both and rather than either or. And I think we've, we've come to a point where we're, we're reintegrating that. So yes, there may be things that are polar and separated, but there are also things that are polar and integrated. So it's an exciting time. <laughs> well, now that you've talked about the goddess and how that represents the divine feminine, now might be a good time to talk about what are the Nedaru, hopefully I pronounced that right, and can you share more about your relationship with Hathor? So the Nedaru, Neder was a word that was mistranslated by archaeologists as God. And so this is why we say the god Is Osiris or the goddess Isis. And Neder, Nederu is the plural, 
Netter actually is an aspect of nature. It's an archetype. And it was revered and worshipped in ancient times, but it was worshipped as an aspect of nature. Nothing was separated from nature and this kind of natural flow. So the Netter or the Netteru are what, what most people know as the gods and goddesses of, of ancient Egypt. And what's interesting about them is that they represent different functions or different aspects. Obviously, every archetype has some, again, talking about information, an archetype is a blueprint. It's something that holds information in a specific pattern so that it unfolds in a very specific way. And that's what these these netter or netteru were were these archetypes. So when we invoke the god Osiris, the netter Osiris, we're invoking a very specific kind of energy that has a story, that has a beginning, middle, and end, that holds certain qualities. So for me, really what called me back to Egypt was Hathor, um, and she is the netteret of the divine feminine or the sacred feminine. And I didn't really realize that that was what was happening. <laughs> I didn't realize that was why I was coming or, or what was going on. But as time went on, it began to unfold. And she's, I'll, I'll use the word goddess because that's what, what most people know but her we're as. All used or, to. Yes, that what the, the vocabulary that people use. Um, she's the goddess of of scrying, of dance, of music, basically of vibration. But she was someone who wasn't really well known. And on we're talking about, you know, 30, 40 years ago. I think people are more familiar with her now, but not so much because Isis kind of took over the front row and she she's the one that everybody knows about and everybody remembers and again if you look at the history you have to think about egypt if egypt went even if egypt only went from 32000 bc to the year 1 which it didn't it was longer than that but let's say that that's already 32000 years which I don't think is something that we can really comprehend in time from, you know, from the year one to now, it's only been 2020 years. So this is one and a half times that, and, that, and, and we're talking about, you know, uh, a period of time that everybody seems to accept that 32,000 or 31,000 BC, maybe it's even older than that. So this is a huge period of time. So obviously, these gods and goddesses changed a lot over those periods of time. Hathor is a pre-dynastic goddess, or she was pre-dynastic. So she is very ancient. And you, you see a lot more about her in the really ancient things. And then as we get closer through history, you, you see more of Isis. And I think that really changed around the the age of Aries, which is when like the Abrahamic religions came in, 
and it became more patriarchal. So you have Osiris and Isis and, and Nephthys and Set. You have this whole group, which were closer to human beings. So we're moving away again. If you think of that, the yuga cycle, we're moving away for that, from that sort of immaterial thing into more manifested, more physical forms because these become more accepted. And they became be, they become more patriarchal. There was more of a hierarchy. Uh, so can I ask in, a question in, at this point? Sure. I've I've been listening to what you've been saying, and it kind of makes me think that so Hathor um, was more of this archetypal idea, and kind of as time you know went on, you know this archetype got more and more personified into a goddess figure and we start calling, you know, Hathor her and therefore she gets this, this, you know, somewhat anthropomorphized identity, right, which was an archetype of the divine feminine and vibration. And then as more time goes on, Hathor's archetype kind of evolves to be more and more and more personified until it's no longer Hathor, it's Isis, because Isis, you know, kind of covers <laughs> most mm -hmm. of the archetypes of the divine feminine as well. So would you kind of say that the evolution of the Hathor archetype, which um, I kind of want to touch a little bit on most people pronounce Hathor, and I would really love your, um, your input on how that even evolved from Hathor to Hathor. But um, would you agree or disagree that, that the concept of the divine feminine from ancient Egyptian teachings kind of evolved from the Hathor archetype to more and more personified to Hathor the goddess and then Isis the goddess. Do you think that is kind of um, a logical progression? It is, and it's a very modern idea because in ancient times, everything was not so clear. There are many female goddesses. And again, we're talking about uh, different places in Egypt. There were different centers. So some were more devoted to, to one netter or netteret or, or god or goddess. And then others to other ones. There were many female goddesses that sort of overlapped. So you can't sort of just take it apart and say, this one does that, and that one does that, and you know, Osiris is the god of the dead, Set is, you know, the warrior. Oh, they don't have, they're not that specific. They blend into each other different, and the same thing happened through history. We have the whole Greek uh, gods and goddesses just morphing into the Roman ones, which all came from the Egyptian ones, morphed into the Greek, into the... So you have that, but they're, they're not these definite lines. So I think whenever we talk about this, we need to try to get less concrete and, and try to define it less and try to understand and feel it more. And I think then we can really understand what's going on. Again, with the goddesses, they were usually about processes. And in ancient times, we had the serpent goddess. And the serpent goddess was 
Hathor Sekhmet. Again, there are two, always two aspects of the feminine that integrate because this takes us back. If, if you know anything about the cosmic serpent, I think uh, Jeremy Narby talks about this. And it's really the concept of DNA. So as far back in these ancient times, people knew about DNA. They knew that the serpent goddess, the two aspects of the serpent goddess were our DNA. So again, you can't get to, well, then she's DNA and this is that. No, because DNA is this huge subject. It's, it's possibly, you know, um, everything. It moves through well, us. It, as, it, as someone with a bachelor's degree in genetics, um, <laughs> yes, DNA is a really big concept. But, yeah, you know, so you were talking about, so DNA is a double helix, right? And so there's, yep. there's a double backbone. So what you're saying is in ancient Egyptian teachings share that one backbone is Hathor and one backbone is Sekhmet and they, yes, they intertwine. They intertwine. Mm -hmm. Cool. Yes. That's new to me because that's not exactly yes. what they teach you in, in, you know, university. No, <laughs> and I, I studied biochemistry at university and, and wondered why. For an entire year, I'm studying DNA. Now I know because I have a very good understanding of DNA. So when I then can move into another area, well, wow, this is really interesting. We also know that DNA didn't originate on Earth. It couldn't have. It's, it's too old. The process of, of creating DNA takes longer than it's actually been on Earth. So it was probably seeded. It could have been from a meteorite, it could have been from the Anunnaki, it could have been, you know, it could have been who knows where it came from. And it doesn't matter. I think we will know at some point in time, maybe we're not ready to know, but that isn't the point. The point is that science has confirmed that it came from someplace else. So she's DNA. She's she, meaning the serpent goddess, is DNA. This is the function. This is what she brings and and usually the goddesses are about some kind of function and what is hathor all about she's the goddess of birthing and so is sekhmet but sekhmet is the warrior goddess sekhmet is like when you're in labor you know when you're fighting for your life and the life of the child and then you have hathor which is this more um nurturing type of energy usually again i'm i'm you know, just sort of peeling it back here. <laughs> but, um, but those two are integrated and both of them are about this process of genetics, which is what takes us into the future. So it's, yeah, it's very complicated. It's probably not very complicated. It's probably really simple, but we just don't have enough information or are our minds are not expanded enough to understand this concept because I think when you really do get down to it, these things are really simple. But obviously these ancient cultures knew these things and they needed a way to talk about it. And the most interesting person to read, I think, if, if this is a subject that interests people, is Laird Scranton. Because what he's done is he's worked with the information from the Dogon tribe and the Dogon tribe are a tribe, a current, they live now. They're not 
an ancient tribe, but they were an ancient tribe. In ancient times, they were probably part of the ancient Egyptian, um, that group of people, and then they migrated and they went up in the mountains. So they still exist. And they're the ones that knew that Sirius was a binary star even before scientists ever knew that because they have their, their tradition of wisdom is unbroken from these pre-dynastic times to now. They use the same mythology to explain the creation of the world. And they're actually quite, what they're talking about is like quantum physics, but nobody could confirm that because nobody understood quantum physics until very recently. So so yeah, it's it's really interesting. And he's done a lot of work with that. And he's he's confirming these concepts that they are using their mythology to describe things that scientists are only now beginning to understand. So there's a lot out there. Yeah. So <laughs> as I said, it's exciting times. I kind of I kind of get this is going to be a ironic. I kind of get the picture that <laughs> it's going to be ironic when I get to it. Um, I'm getting the picture that, you know, kind of the wisdom and knowledge of the universe is this, is a big picture. And we have currently little puzzle pieces of it. And what we can use ancient teachings for is to fill in more of the pieces of the puzzle so that when we put you know, the modern pieces and the ancient pieces together, we have a little bit clearer picture, a little bit more clarity about the bigger picture. Yes? Yes. Yes. And to start with the, the belief that these people did know what they were talking about and what did they mean? Because any wonderful, you know, invention that has come came from out in the ethers somewhere. Einstein talks nothing about, you know, how he... No gets, knowledge, yeah. no and, wisdom, and no nothing is new. It all no. exists. Yeah. yeah. Or in altered states of consciousness. And in these altered states of consciousness is when we can communicate with that other side. So the thing I didn't say about this whole yuga cycle is that we go from the golden age, we become heavier, 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 more material till we reach the Kali Yuga at the bottom. And then we have this ascending phase and then everything flips. So everything goes from being physical in the material world to the non-material world. So again, Laird Scranton is another one to read about this. There seems to be these two worlds of the material world and the non-material world. The Dogen talk about this. I call it the physical and, this, and the metaphysical world. <laughs> yeah, and, these, and communicating. Yeah, communicating between these two. And again, the Egyptians called it the duat. We, we believe that they were obsessed with death, but they weren't. They were obsessed with this, not obsessed. <laughs> they believed in this other non-material world. And that's where they were going. When they left this world, that's where they were going. And so it was important. It was important to know how to navigate that. And I think that that's the other thing we can. So we can use this information in that way to communicate with this non-material world. And we don't have to communicate, like set up some type of communication, but just open our minds to the possibilities of these other dimensions 
and read things like mythology. I think that Rudolf Steiner believed that uh, children should only read like Grimm's fairy tales because they were archetypal. That was the only thing they were allowed to read because he believed that these archetypes, this was important for children to understand that. Well, they're the same stories as mythology. So if you want to do your kids a great service, read them mythology. These are the stories. These are the eternal return. This is where the truth is. And it's all encoded in some kind of a, a story because stories are easy to remember and stories are easy to pass on. Just like this concept of DNA, it's easier to understand it if you think of it as two goddesses of that, then you can tell a story about these two goddesses and you're going to explain all of science and genetics through these stories that you tell. So again, the feminine, this storytelling aspect that we're getting back into. So read mythology, you know, look at these ancient cultures. As I said, there's a lot of independent researchers that are doing really interesting work. John Anthony West, who unfortunately has passed on, he did wonderful work and he was an independent archeologist. So there are a lot of people that have done the work. And again, nobody has it right 100%, but read it and listen or you know, read Find the mythology. of the puzzle. Exactly. And then ask yourself, does this make sense? Or how does this all fit together? Instead of taking that approach of no, this, there's no way this can be true, so forget it. Let's go back mm. to the laboratory and see what we can come up with then. <laughs> and again, it's most of these wonderful inventions have come from some altered state of consciousness. It didn't come from somebody sitting and thinking about a problem and how to solve it. It came from dance or sleeping or some way that we can communicate. And for me, that's what Hator has been. For me, it was the dance. In the dance, I would just download information. And all of that happened after visiting her temple because something, you know, something shifted in me and I became more receptive to, to all of this. And that's my way in. That's is through the dance. But again, she's the goddess of vibration and movement. And even the flower remedies that I created are vibrational essences. We know everything comes back to vibration and energy. So there is a way to tap into all of that. So on the subject of Hator, can you talk briefly about how her name has kind of evolved from well, Hator? It has been evolved. In modern times? Hathor, Hator actually is the Greek. Het, uh, her name, Het Heru, actually means house or mansion of Horus, which is, again, another, another con and a whole other subject. But the mansion of Horus, and Horus is basically the hero. So we're talking about the womb. We're talking the, about the place, the temple, the mansion of Horus, which is, which is the womb. So that's what her name means. So in, in only in English is TH, so, and it's not an English word. So there would be no reason to pronounce it that way. I know so people do. So it's language. So yes. Hator, so Heteru is the original? Het Heru. Would you say? Yeah. Het Heru? Yes. There are, there are and no then Hator would be in, the Greek? 
And then yes. Hathor would be and the English pronunciation. Yes. Cool. Thank you. Yes. I've always That's wondered. Always <laughs> a little, a little <laughs> hyphen so that people yeah, yeah, don't, teach, dash, right? don't use it like a TH. Yeah. 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 Cool. Awesome. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you, Leslie. Is there anything else about ancient teachings that you wanted to share before we move on a little bit? No, I mean, I'm, there are a million things I could share, but I know. <laughs> we'll be here I know. tomorrow. So, no. Well, there's more <laughs> in your video. Ask me questions if you have them. <laughs> so, you also have a gift to share with those watching or listening, right? Can you tell us about your dance as a spiritual practice e gift or ebook as a gift? Yes. So, the book that I wrote, the first book that I wrote was The Alchemy of Dance. And that's all about this sort of dance form that came through. And then after teaching classes, I realized that there had to be, I needed to build a base. I see, I've learned over time. I build the base first. Now I build the base first. Yeah. So I created a course called Dance as a Spiritual Practice. So this ebook basically is just how to use dance or movement. And it doesn't have to be dance, movement as a spiritual practice. For me, that was the way everything came in. It, it created an opening. And I think that's what spiritual practices are for, is, is to create that portal between uh, the material world and the metaphysical or the non-material world. So dance is one way to do that. Different types of movement and embodiment are, are good vehicles for that. So this is just a, a little ebook that kind of has an overview of of how somebody might use dance as a spiritual practice. So yes, there's a, a free download on my website. You can go there cool. and download. And people can find it if you're listening at www.universaldancer.com. If you're watching, we have a beautiful banner that shows you that. But if you're listening, I thought I would read that out. Awesome. Thank you for sharing that beautiful gift with us. And you recently started the Universal Dancer podcast. Can you tell us about what inspired you to start that and where people can find it? Well, you're part of what inspired me, actually. <laughs> no, I think when we, when, we, uh, when we did our last masterclass and I was speaking about being a seeker, I re-identified yeah. with that. And... Um, and since then have been doing a lot more research. Uh, before that, it had been, and again, it's that whole, you know, separating out and bringing back together thing. I think I started as a researcher. I started as a scientist. So I started as a researcher. Same. Then I came yeah. to Egypt. <laughs> yeah. And I had all these experiences and I was deep in my experiential, more the high priestess archetype. And then when you talked about being a seeker, I thought, yes, I am, and I've lost that piece of myself. So I, yeah. I went back to that, and um, and that was it's important. returning to so, our archetypes, right? Like, yeah, the and, healer, and there's the another level, sure, and there's another level of of something I needed to do. So that's really what the podcast is about. Is uh, the first few episodes are going to be focused on sacred dance. But then I'm going to begin to add episodes and I'll go into other sacred arts and hopefully then bring some of these researchers that are doing work that I think is really beneficial to support 
the experiences that we're having. So that's, and also my, I have to credit my son. He's been telling me for years that I have <laughs> to start a podcast, but the pieces didn't fit together. I thought, yes, you're right. But, but then the whole seeker thing with his, his insistence that I should have a podcast, then, then I knew what the podcast would be about. So, it so all now comes I have, in time. yeah, yes, yeah. yes. Awesome. And people can find your podcast at www.universaldancer.com. There's a tab for a podcast and I have a list of the guests and, and the past episodes and more information. Nice. Beautiful. Thank you so much, Leslie for sharing all your amazing wisdom about how we can use the knowledge of the ancients to help us progress along our own modern paths. And to learn more from Leslie, you can visit her website at www.universaldancer.com. You can also take her metaphysical school video course on the wisdom of Hathor, Introduction to the Divine Feminine. Hint, hint. <laughs> So thank you, Leslie, for joining us today. Thank you, Tina. I really enjoyed, as always, enjoyed talking to you. Thank you. Beautiful. Thanks. And before we go, I'd like to share that this episode of Metaphysical Musings is brought to you by Metaphysical School, offering everything awakened souls need to ignite their enlightenment journey, including courses, clarity, confidence, and connection. Our video education and community membership includes over 50 video courses and masterclasses to choose from that you can watch anytime, anywhere. You can discover your soul path as a healer, seeker, mystic, or seer, and find out where you're currently at on that path and what you need to get to the next step with ease. You can build trust in your intuition with our weekly intuitive activities designed to gain intuitive wisdom through experience and get all the support you need with our growing community of awakened, metaphysically minded souls. If you're an awakened soul who feels afraid, alone, overwhelmed, or lost, we can help you to enlighten into being wise, connected, centered, and aligned on the next steps on your soul path. I invite you to visit our website to learn more about the many benefits of enrolling in our school membership, where you can ignite your enlightenment journey with us at metaphysical.school. And while you're there, I invite you to take our What Metaphysical Archetype Are You quiz to discover if you're the healer with a passion for caring for others, the seeker with a thirst for finding truth and wisdom, the mystic who revels in their intuitive abilities, or the seer, skilled in divination and astrology. Knowing your metaphysical archetype is the first step in understanding your soul path, helping you to progress on your enlightenment journey. Just click on the Take the Quiz button on our website at metaphysical.school. And with that, I would like to conclude this episode of Metaphysical Musings by giving gratitude. Thank you so much to Leslie Zare, metaphysical school teacher and sacred dance teacher at theuniversaldancer.com for joining us today and sharing some of her amazing ancient Egyptian wisdom with us. Again, you can connect with her through her website at universaldancer.com. You can also find her, her free gift, which is 
the Dance as a Spiritual Practice ebook on her website as well. And you can connect with her on social media through her Instagram, which is at the underscore universal underscore dancer. And lastly, I would like to thank you for joining us in watching or listening to the show. I hope you enjoyed this episode and I look forward to sharing more metaphysical musings with you in upcoming episodes. Bye for now.